Well, today we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that contains staggering beauty, that describes staggering, mind-blowing beauty, and also contains staggering challenge, kind of challenge that makes you flinch and want to find a softer way of saying it, and then realize there isn't one. But we don't start there, because we are people of grace. We are people who God has come and saved us. And as you've heard today, is offering you salvation. It's offering you not a way to live, although there is a way to live. He's offering you himself and his forgiveness and his freedom and his love. So we're going to see all that in this passage. I'd love us to pray to start because, because Lord, we are not adequate for this. Our minds are insufficient to comprehend what you are going to say to us today, and I am insufficient to describe it. And so, Holy Spirit, you who knows this better than anyone, and who does not despise our weaknesses, but rather works in them, please, we pray, would you give us eyes to see wonderful things in your word? Would we see by faith through what your inspired word says to us, what is true, what is real about God. Would you also give us ears to hear what you're saying to us? Amen. Amen. We're going to be started, we're going to be reading chapter 2 of... Philippians, that's on page 12 in your journal. And here's what Paul says. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God. And this is a really good example of why when you are reading the word of God, you should focus on him before you focus on yourselves. If you just read God's word to be like, right, what's it telling me to do? What do I need to do? Well, there's some things you need to do in this passage. Be like-minded, have the same love, be in one spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That's what you need to do. How's that going? I mean, who's going to, who even wants to try to take that on by themselves? But that is how Christians are to live. That's how followers of Jesus are to live. And so Paul intentionally surrounds these humanly impossible commands with reasons and power to do them before and after. So beforehand, he talks about what God has done and is doing. He says there's encouragement and strength for everyone who is in Christ. And he says that there is God's comforting love, and he says the Holy Spirit is filling us. He uses this if-then structure, which isn't, he's not saying, so have a think, have a, have a think around. Have you noticed any encouragement in Jesus recently? If you haven't done it, well, then this won't apply to you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there is encouragement in Christ. There is comfort in love. There is fellowship with the Holy Spirit. These things God has done. Therefore, do those other things. And then it's almost like he's like, well, I've given them some pretty good reasons. Well, let's... Let's go further, because what he then does is he takes us to a whole different level of awareness of God's work, of what God has done, of how God has done this for us, how Jesus has exemplified this, gives us the ultimate revelation of what this looks like that we have benefited from if we are believers in Jesus, and so that we are able to then live for others. And he does this in what many people think is like a hymn or something. It may well have been. And if it is or isn't, the point is that we would praise God because of it. And we should be amazed by Jesus because of this. And then being amazed by Jesus, we then to love others humbly. And so we're going to focus our time on that, that kind of second half of the passage. And yeah, those verses 
in particular to try and sense, for some of you for the first time, for many of you, to sense again, to sense freshly what it is that he has done, therefore who it is that he is, what he is like. So we begin before the beginning. Jesus being in very nature God. So this is Paul asserting the Christian claim that the man Jesus of Nazareth is also the eternal son of God. And this means that as John wrote in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Before anything was made, Jesus was. He has always existed. He has no beginning because he is God. He is the divine. And he has always existed with the Father and with the Spirit. And for always and forever, they have known each other fully and delighted in each other wholeheartedly and have loved one another and have glorified one another. Jesus in John 17 verse 5 says to the Father, Father, glorify me with the glory I had from you before the, before the world was made. That is how Jesus has existed, has lived forever. He has always been God's beloved son. I mean, all our relationships, you know, they do this and that, don't they? The idea that one would ever be like that, gloriously, like way beyond the best thing we've ever experienced with someone else. And always and forever. We can't get our minds around that. And yet that is what Jesus has with the Father. We're told that God dwells in unapproachable light. Jesus is that light. He is the radiance of the glory of God, Hebrews 1 tells us. The exact imprint of his nature. No one has ever seen God, says John, except Jesus has. So he is uniquely privileged, uniquely glorious. And with God the Spirit and God the, Fa- and God the Father, he, God the Son, made all things. Again, John 1, all things were made through the Son, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he made it all. He is sustaining it all. It is the least that he deserves as the creator and sustainer of all things. So they are made by him, through him, and for him. This is his greatness. This is his glory. And there are many created things here on earth that don't realise that, but there are plenty of created things up in heaven which do realise that. And we get a glimpse of the kind of thing they say to him all the time. In Revelation chapter 4, there's a, a, a heavenly throne room scene. 
John says the four living creatures never cease to say, holy, holy, holy. That is set apart, entirely gloriously different. It's the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And John says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him, and he's just said they always do that, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So Jesus exists in an eternal relationship of loving, glory, joy with the Father and the Spirit. And then he creates all things which gives him glory. And the things that are in heaven see him and they give him glory. Could anything be better than that? Could there be any loftier position than that? Because he's God, he's self-existent. He, he needs nothing. Because he's God. He's glorious and his praise continually because he's God. He's in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Son. But he isn't going to stay there. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That's weird for Paul's original hearers. Because they lived in, a, in an honour-shame culture where you deserved what you got. And if you were at the top, you made sure you stayed there and you used all the advantages of your position to keep yourself there. You kept others down, you kept yourself up. That's what everyone did. But what does Jesus do with his greatness, with his divinity? What does he do from a throne? Hang on, on, what? He's going to do what? Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, this is very familiar to many of us here. It was dizzyingly new to Roman culture. They had a social hierarchy. At the very top, the gods. At the very bottom, the slaves. And Paul has just said that Jesus has gone from the very top to the very bottom. He even rubs it in. He says, Jesus, being in very nature God, took the very nature of a slave. We usually translate it servant, but the word is equally slave. It's that bad. And he just confronts us with this thing. Like, Can you imagine a slave owner saying, do you know what? I'm done with being a slave owner. I'm going to be a slave instead. No one's going to do that. It doesn't even come close to what Jesus is doing here. He's the creator who becomes a creature. He is the high and exalted one who becomes the lowest of the low. It's it's like he's diving down from the greatest heights to the lowest depths. And and why? Why why is he doing this? All that authority, all that glory, did he lose it? No. He set them aside. 
His divine abilities weren't reduced, but he restrained them. And we see glimpses of them. We see moments where they kind of break through, as it were. He's in the middle of a storm. And he says to the storm, stop. And it does. Because he made the storm. These are creative all things. Creation has to do what he says. And he says, stop. When he's on the mountain of transfiguration and suddenly it says, his face shone like the sun. It's like the glory that he has veiled in human flesh has a moment in which it just comes out. And the people there bow down. And it's hidden away again. And that's what it's like for the vast majority of his life on earth. He hides his glory. He hides it so well, we just don't know anything about most of his life. Where was he? What was he doing? Don't know. He was hidden. I mean, we obviously know about his birth. We know there were some angels made a bit of a noise in a very localized area. But I mean, God could have got the he could have summoned the whole world to that moment. He could have literally dragged people from the very ends of the earth and brought them all there and then shown his son and then got them to bow down and worship him. If the glory had been unleashed, if the glory had been on display in that way, that is what would have happened. And he could have, should have then, taken all the palaces and all the gold and all the praise and all the service of all the people and used it. To make his life better. But he chooses obscurity. He chooses poverty. He chooses service, slavery. The Son of Man, he says, came not to be served, but to serve. And so many of us are from a Christian culture, we're like, yes, of course. Not of course. No one does that. I'm just. I've, I've, I've got all this money. I'm just here to serve. I've got all this power. I'm just here to serve. No one does that. But he does that. And he, he doesn't drag people to him. He goes to where they are. And he teaches them, even though they aren't going to get it. And he, he gives them food, even though they're just going to ask for more food rather than, or, may, or get the wrong idea about who he is. And he labors all day, sometimes we're told, for hours in healing people, in setting people free. He literally washes his disciples' feet, including Judas, who he knows is about to use those feet to march off and betray him. And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So I don't know much about you, but I'm pretty confident you are going to die because you're a human being and we are subject to death. You might find some kind of tech billionaires at the moment thinking, no, no, there's a way around this, and there is not. Because we've all sinned. And that means we have to take the wages of sin, which are death. That was not the case for Jesus. He was not subject to death. He was divine. He was without sin. Yet, 
he becomes obedient to death. And that isn't that death kind of then is in control of him, but that he obeys God and he obeys God's will so entirely that that includes dying. And so his life from, on earth, from birth to death, is entire obedience. Entire, permanent, constant obedience. His obedience to God went all the way. John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. We started way up there. And the grave is the lowest point of all. But even then, he takes the worst way to get there. Again, you almost certainly knew that Jesus died on a cross. And whether you're a follower of him or not here today, you're probably like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what Jesus does. That, dying on the cross, sure. Again, this was unbelievable for that culture, that someone with the dignity, with the divinity that he claimed to die that way. One of Rome's most famous statesmen, Cicero, said that crucifixion was the most wretched of deaths. Far be the very name of a cross, not only from the body, but even from the thought, the eyes, the ears of Roman citizens. This was the kind of thing you did not talk about in polite company at all. One of the advantages of Roman citizenship was that you couldn't be crucified because it was prolonged public torture. It was degrading. It was dehumanizing. It was humiliating. And as for the Romans, so for the Jews. Their scriptures told them, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And that's what Jesus does very intentionally. Jesus said, he says it to his disciples again and again. And you see in their reaction, they're like, this cannot possibly be the case. If you are who you say you are, if you are who you keep showing us who you are, you cannot possibly be going to die, let alone die like that. And any time they say that to him, he says, shut up. I'm obeying my father. So look where this has taken us. Very nature God in heaven, now in a grave with the very nature of a slave, humiliated, crucified. Why? There's a new story a couple of years ago about a guy who claimed to have thrown away a computer hard drive with 200 million pounds worth of Bitcoin on it. Now I'm like most of us, I'm like, That's like all the stuff about tech and all the stuff about money that I don't understand. But he says that there's a hard drive somewhere in a landfill, I think it's near Newport, and he said to the council, I really really do want to find that hard drive, please. And um, he obviously did all he could to make that happen by, you know, doing a campaign in the news and stuff like that. And he has suggested that using AI and apparently robot dogs will help. It's 
assuming his story is true, how far would he go to, to get it? How far would you go for that much money? I mean, that's kind of taking you past even the kind of Christian I know. Oh, who needs money? But 200 million. <laughs> I mean, just imagine, like, I mean, most of us, even when we're going near landfill, accelerate away, don't we? Imagine going into it. And I don't know, lakes of old engine oil wading through it, but it's on the other side. A hill of twisty, spiky, rusty, tetanus-filled metal. Okay, fine, I'm climbing over that because I know what's on the other side. Where is it? Oh, it's underneath where we put all the food and used nappies. That's fine. That's fine. It will be awful. It will be utterly, utterly awful. Of course it will. But there's something I need to get. For that much money, for something that valuable, he'd surely be prepared to do almost anything. And you know the point I'm going to make. But what if he was a billionaire many times over? What if he was already entirely provided for? Jesus had all the love of the Father and the Spirit. He had all the praise of heaven. Earth had nothing but foolish rebels, practices of evil, pretenders to his throne, people who make a mess of each other and their own lives. And yet he came down. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5. 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is why he did it. This is how he did it. Isaiah 52 and 53 is in Paul's mind when he when he writes the passage we're looking at. So I'm just going to read it at length because it just brings, again, a different angle. But Behold, God says, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So, highly exalted. Now no one wants to look at him. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has been not told them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he's heard from us? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Because he'd set it all aside. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The one who'd known eternal joy. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He obeyed perfectly so that we can say that one of us has done that and can say to God, don't look at us, look at him. And he obeyed perfectly so that the sacrifice he made was of infinite value. So that any who say, please, is there a sacrifice that could be made on my behalf? God can say, yes, there is. There's my son whose sacrifice was so perfect. It contains billions. He made himself what we were, cursed by God, so that we could be what he is, beloved children of God. Scripture says that we were dead in our sins. We're the opposite of where he started. And yet he has raised us to life and seated us in heavenly places with him. Because the end of the story is not the grave. Glory is the end. Death could not hold him. The Father vindicated him. He rose to eternal new life and ascended. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What the Son refused to use for his own advantage, the Father has given him forever. The highest place, the name above every name. These are statements of authority. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is a title of authority. It's what Roman Caesars said about themselves. It's the Greek word the Jews used to translate the unspoken name of God in the Old Testament. So this is supremacy. That is where he now is. That is what heaven is now worshipping. Revelation goes on from those songs of creation to those songs of salvation. And he's singing those now. And a day is coming and is another day closer when this supremacy will be seen and praised by all. Who will see and experience Christ in this way? Paul says, everyone, everywhere, all will praise him out of choice or necessity. You will be in one of those categories. But everyone will, because so clear, so unveiled will be his glory and all that he has done, that everyone, everywhere, will praise him. They will glorify him. And the glory is, I mean, fitting, doesn't even seem to, doesn't do it justice, does it? It was fitting before, but now, sin-defeating, death-conquering, perfectly obedient man, the Son of God, he will be praised forever and ever. So, Paul says, you do likewise. Okay, that's really hard still. Paul says, yes, really hard. But you now have, Paul says, the mindset of Christ. If you have given your life to Jesus, if you have bowed the knee to him now, if you have confessed with your mouth now that he is Lord, Paul says you have his mindset. You have to learn to think that way. You have to learn to act that way. And there's plenty in you and around you that's not acting and thinking that way. But it is now, Paul says, possible and increasingly so. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all beholding the glory of the Lord. That's what we've tried to do this morning as we've looked at this passage. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So as we meditate on this, as we think upon this, as we bring this to our attention again and again and again, As we look to who God is, he is making us more like himself that we might then live more like him. It's it's such a divine calling. could, Could you not just dial this down a bit, Paul? You know, be be quite close. In spirit and mind, 
at least to the people who are like you already? Or do fewer things out of selfish ambition, at least than the people around you? Value others nearly as much as yourself? That is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is to be like-minded with the Father, having the same love, being in one in spirit and mind, and to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul has shown us this. He has described it to us. He's shown us just to say, he used this word humility twice in there, and often what we think of humility is having a low opinion of yourself. That's not humility. Jesus is the most humble person who ever was. He didn't have a low opinion of himself, but he lowered himself. So humility, we think of it as a downward trajectory, and there is part of that as we think about ourselves less. But then Paul shows it, it's absolutely essential that humility then goes outwards. Because humility is expressed through how we relate with one another. That we value others above ourselves. And it's the kind of thing you think to preach, like, well, how can I explain this? How can I describe this? How can I say it in a memorable way? And to be honest, really what I've just been doing for myself the last couple of weeks as I've been trying to work with this is I've just been saying it. Because I don't want to, I don't, they might, I might kind of sneak out of it somehow otherwise. Do you know what I mean? So I've, I've just been letting it jar with me. And guess what? The Holy Spirit's really happy. He's really, he's fine with that. So I've been just in situations where I've just been facing a choice. Is that what I want to do? This is what someone else wants me to do. And I'm like, I've got so many great ways to explain why what I want to do is the, the right thing to do. Except that I'm to do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above myself, not looking to my own interests, but to the interests of others. I just can't get out of that. Or when I haven't had the choice, when what's happening is already what I don't want, what isn't what I would prefer, but is what someone else prefers. And so the only choice left to me is the attitude with which I will do that. Then again, I can't be like, God, I can't believe this is happening. And I'm like, no, God, I need you to change my heart. I need you to make me more like your son. Because when you think this way, when you're understanding this about Jesus the whole time, and he's at work in your life, and he's just giving you his word unvarnished, sharp. It's really hard to argue with. So I just want to say to you, what are the people, what are the relationships or the circumstances that you find yourself in where this radical, Jesus-shaped way of living 
needs to come in and have more work. Where he needs to be confronted with this. He does it very lovingly, but he does it. I think we just have to, have to acknowledge that within ourselves and around us, everything is the opposite direction. Everything is raise yourself up. Everything is get better. Everything is do put yourself first. So many of our products and services, uh, their business model is based on people being selfishly ambitious and vainly conceited. And so they make those things into virtues and encourage us to do more of them. And most of us are like, yeah, I am worth it. And even if you see through that product, you're like, that product won't make me happier. Let me go and find the other thing that will make me happier. (laughs) We end up holding God in judgment for not making us happy like the adverts told us he should. And we fail to put others before ourselves. The only way to be saved from this hellish selfishness is to be transformed by the humble saviour, Jesus Christ, and be part of his people as they learn to live his way, to make our lives lives not about ourselves, but about others. The only way we can do that is by doing those things. We're going to sing in just a moment to just thank him again for this, to praise him again for this. It's just to say the the primary context of what Paul's saying there, he's actually talking to the church, that this is how they're to relate to one another, and the point being that as you give yourself in this way to others, so they will give themselves in that way to you, and therefore together our, our needs are met. Clearly we have to think this way also about those who don't yet know Jesus, because we've seen, we've been shown what's coming, and it is in our love for them that we that we share with them about Jesus, that we don't think, how will they, what will they think about me? How will this go for me? But rather, I, need, I want you to know this. I must share this with you because this is for your good. So the ways in which this is going to work itself out and how we relate to each other and others is, is well, it's, it's multitudes. But it is how God wants us to live. And I've described that a bit weakly, I feel, but I hope I've put a challenge before you that you and maybe those around you and the Holy Spirit with God's word will be at work in you to do that. But within the words that were shared earlier, that sense of uh, being seen by God and uh, being known by God. And obviously a, a message like this, you can be like... Uh, even though I've front-loaded it with as much of the grace of God as I could, you can still go away being like, I am rubbish at that, and God is disappointed with me. And that is not the heart of Christ, as we've seen. And so I just, want, just feel like God wants to encourage each and any of us who are trying to do this at all. He sees that, and he loves it, and he just wants to bless you for it. And so I just want to encourage you to turn your attention to him uh, right now. And just to receive, like, what, how? Just to receive a blessing of God for where you have. 
acted for the preference of others, for where you have obeyed and imitated Jesus, for where you have done things that have been painful to yourself, but have blessed other people. And God is, he's, he is just pleased. He wants you to know that. Jesus, please help each of us. We love you so much. So amazed by what you've done. I ask that you keep making us more like you. Help us as a church family be more like you. Help us as individuals look to the interests of others, not to ourselves. To the glory of God the Father. Amen.